Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Provoke podcast. I'm Maya Pavinska-Sims, the EMEA editor of Provoke, and I'm here just outside London with Gavin Devine, former chief exec of MHP, founder of Public Affairs Boutique Park Street Partners and PRCA board members here here to talk about two of the biggest stories in the UK at the moment, the Greensill lobbying scandal and the European Super League uh, Farago, I think we can call it that. Um, Gavin and I live literally like... I could probably look out of my window and see his garden, so I probably should be doing this al fresco. But we are we're 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 now so uh, institutionally zoomed that uh, we're we're doing this remotely, which is uh, hopefully we'll be able to see the person again soon. Gavin, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. I'm sorry I'm not in your garden. That would be much more fun. Well, the sun is shining and we would be having a very nice time. But anyway, as you say, absolutely committed to Zoom these days. At least it's not Teams. (laughs) Have you been to the pub yet? Uh, You know that I've been to the pub because we were there on Monday afternoon, about 20 seconds after the pub doors opened. So, yes, I've been to the pub approximately five times already. Uh, and I am not in any way apologetic for that. That's quite good going. I've had four lunches out post lockdown, although it is still a little bit cold to be eating outside. So, um, but anyway, we are here. The sun is shining. It's a gorgeous day. Um, in the land of politics and communications, it's been quite a week or so, I think it's fair to say. There's this huge David Cameron Greensill lobbying scandal going on. Can you give me a potted version of what the situation is? I think the first thing to say is that I get really fed up. As somebody who's been a lobbyist and proud to be a lobbyist, proud to use the word lobbyist for nearly 20 years, Uh, I get really fed up with this being described as a lobbying scandal because it is very, very little to do with professional lawyers uh, and the way that uh, we conduct ourselves. It's really about a proximity to government, a cronyism uh, uh, scandal within which lobbying plays a very, very minor part. So that's the first thing. Essentially, what has happened here is that David Cameron has been signed up uh, with uh, Greensill um, to provide various forms of support, one of which, and possibly the most significant of which, appears to have been to contact lots of people that he had in his mobile phone contacts uh, to argue for support for Greensill when it ran into some difficulties when the pandemic started. Um, and it has rolled on and on from there. The newspapers are doing a fantastic job of spinning uh, out the story with new revelations almost every day uh, about new people that have been contacted by David Cameron and uh, other aspects of the, uh, of the inverted commas scandal um, that, have, uh, that have taken place. So uh, it's, it's a rolling fiesta, which um, uh, is, does nothing, I think, for the confidence of people in democracy, does very little for uh, the confidence of people in the Conservative Party, although, I mean, it, 
I'd note that uh, similar issues have inflicted other governments of other persuasions in the past. Um, and uh, ultimately is unhelpful to the lobbying industry, although I think we have to take it as an opportunity to look for some changes to be made. And I won't bore on about those right now, but because I'm anticipating you're going to ask me about them. But, um, but there is an opportunity, I think, to improve things uh, for the future. Um, thank you very much. That was a very good potted summary, Gavin. And tell me, what, what's the problem with the rules then around lobbying? There are, no, there are a whole host of issues uh, with the rules as they stand. Um, David Cameron, many, many years ago, and the, I mean, surely the greatest irony of all of this is that uh, uh, he was the last person to have a go at changing the rules around lobbying. Um, and it turns out that his activities are not covered by, uh, by what he put in place. So he uh, made a speech uh, many years ago now, uh, actually relating to a labour lobbying scandal, um, which uh, in which he promised action around lobbyists. He said that uh, lobbying was the next great scandal waiting to happen. Uh, eventually, that took the form of a piece of legislation that was passed in 2014, um, the Lobbying Act. It actually has a longer title than that, but uh, the Lobbying Act is uh, the easy way to do that. And what that did was set up new restrictions on consultant lobbyists like myself, um, essentially saying that we had to declare any contact with certain categories of uh, politicians and officials um, and, uh, and also uh, be part of a recognised code of conduct. There are issues around that which uh, uh, are many-fold, uh, including the fact that most people who do lobbying, anybody who works in-house uh, for a charity, uh, for a trade union, um, for a business, uh, is not covered by uh, by that legislation, which is uh, patently obviously wrong. Um, it, the it, it doesn't cover many interactions with government either. So, for example, it, it could cover special advisors, but it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't cover uh, very many civil servants, only permanent secretaries at the moment. Um, and so, that's there's a there's a whole area of work around the legislation, but there are then wider issues around. Uh, the revolving door, as it's uh, as it's called, uh, there are issues around uh, the publication of uh, ministerial diaries and the contacts that they have, uh, and whether that's been being done consistently and in a timely way, which clearly it isn't. Um, there are issues around the parliamentary passes, which I think has begun to bubble up as an issue, and I'm anticipating will become a, a much more serious part of the story. Uh, from next week onwards. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a whole host of issues that are uh, to do with uh, access to decision makers uh, that need to be looked at. The PRCA has published a six-point plan, uh, which I'm fully supportive of. And, uh, and I hope that um, you know, this time around, the government takes some meaningful action to deal with what, what, what the issues are. Tell me about the, the six-point plan and how much influence does the PRCA have on this whole murky world? So PRCA six-point plan, I've, I've sort of laid out, but, but to go through it in, <clears throat> in order, it is about expanding the Lobbying Act to cover uh, all lobbyists. Uh, it's to expand the Act to cover uh, interactions between 
uh, with uh, special advisors and senior civil servants, with a greater range of senior civil servants. Uh, there's a call for a ban on ministers taking paid lobbying positions, uh, and also that former ministers should behave in the spirit of the uh, Nolan principles of public life. Um, the, the ministerial diaries, as I mentioned, should actually be published uh, in a timely way and in a comprehensive way. Um, that parliamentary passes uh, should be tightened up. So, for example, former MPs at the moment um, have a right to a pass to enter Parliament. And I can say with certainty, because I've come across it in the past, that some uh, former MPs operate as uh, one-man bad lobbying firms. Uh, and I, I know for a fact occasionally say I have access to Parliament and isn't that a great thing? So that, that to me seems really peculiar. Um, in addition, uh, MPs and peers are sponsoring all sorts of people to hold parliamentary passes. And we, you know, we just think that's wrong. Um, and uh, when it comes to the register of consultant lobbyists, at the moment, uh, some uh, people who are on the register uh, and are required to declare a code, in effect, declare something that they've written themselves and police themselves. Uh, and we have consistently said that that's, uh, that that's inappropriate and wrong. PRCA's um, role in this, I think, is important. It is the representative body for the industry. And with the Public Affairs Board uh, now within the PRCA, um, it is uh, the place, it is the, the body with the authority uh, to actually call for these changes. And I, th I think uh, it's been pretty effective at the moment. We'll wait to see how the six-point uh, plan is taken forward, but it's certainly been talked about, including in Parliament. Uh, and uh, we, we will be pushing for the government to take it seriously and, uh, and to commit to all of the points. How, how successful do you think this is going to be? Because it's, 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 it's broadening the definition of what a lobbyist is and what lobbying is quite substantially, isn't it? I'm not sure it is. I think the important thing is that um, what it's doing is focusing on the areas where the problem has been. The, the Act at the moment focuses on consultant lobbyists, uh, most of whom behave, and by most I mean the vast, vast, vast majority behave entirely professionally and properly. Um, what it doesn't cover is a whole host of people who do lobbying, both as consultants, by the way, uh, you know, people who perhaps don't do lobbying as the main part of their activity, like lawyers and management consultants and others, uh, can still sell that service to, uh, to, to clients um, and not be covered by the Act and not have to declare uh, the contacts that they have. Um, but it also doesn't cover in-house lobbyists, uh, people working for uh, campaigning groups, charities, businesses, private companies, think tanks, you know, a whole host of people who are involved in this world of lobbying. Now, I think the important thing with all of this is to remember that what we're, what we're talking about here is not stopping people doing things. I mean, there, there is an argument that, uh, uh, that what David Cameron was seeking to do, which is to make representations to government, um, are, uh, it was, was entirely appropriate. And in fact, lobbying, I think, is widely recognised to be a good thing, not a bad thing. You know, the alternative would be that decisions were made without any 
reference to the real world without any input from people who really understand the impact of laws and regulations uh, on themselves. You know, I feel incredibly passionately that lobbying is an integral part of democracy. Um, and without it, uh, we would be in a far, far worse position. So the issue is not about lobbying uh, uh, and, and so on. It's, it's about transparency. It's about people knowing what's going on, being able to see what's going on. And it's about uh, fairness of access um, so that you know, people do, are not able to do uh, deals behind closed doors. They're not able to, um, to, to make connections that people don't know about. If people have an ability to contact the Chancellor of Exchequer and they do it in a legitimate way, that's absolutely fine. Uh, if they and, and they should let people know that it's happened and the Chancellor should be publishing his diary to let people know that uh, that connection has uh, taken place. The issue is not about stopping people lobbying. It's about making sure that it's transparent uh, and that people obey uh, code of conduct around what they do. So what's your take on what's your take on the uh, James Dyson, Boris Johnson text exchange, which is also another kind of connected story this week, because that doesn't feel like that is transparent or fair in terms of access. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, I think if, uh, if, if somebody has an ability to contact uh, a, a minister, whether it's a prime minister or anybody else, that's, that's really up to them. I think the issue is actually on the other side. Um, you know, that sort of con contact should be reported, which you know, the Prime Minister says happened, um, and it should be recorded, and people should be aware that that's what's happened uh, so that they can then judge whether the decisions that were made were, were fair and, uh, and honest. Um, I don't necessarily see that as a problem. I think there is a, there is a question which has been raised in the newspapers about whether... Uh, it's sensible for the uh, Prime Minister to keep the same <laughs> contact number and hand it out willy-nilly to people, uh, but that's uh, that's sort of you know, that's a sort of separate point. I, I don't actually see a problem with somebody contacting uh, a minister of any type to ask for help uh, with uh, an issue that they're confronted with. I think you should you could start the sentence. There is a question over whether it is sensible for the prime minister to and end that in a, in a million. Yeah, and, but, 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 but Maya, I mean, I think I think you know this sort of goes to the heart of one of my issues with all of this, which is that you know the, the spotlight is always turned on the people doing the lobbying rather than actually on the people being lobbied. You know, yeah. if, if if people have an issue with uh, ministers or anybody else talking to people outside. Uh, the immediate civil service, which they shouldn't, because, as I say, lobbying is an important part of democracy. But if they have an issue with it, and they have an issue with the way it's going on, the focus should be on the people being lobbied. You know, the focus should be on who did you speak to, why did you reach this decision, um, you know, explain and justify yourself. You know, it should not be on, the owner should not be on the people making representations. I totally accept that, uh, that, that it's important for, for us to be transparent as lobbyists. Um, and I'm fully, fully supportive of it. But, but ultimately, the onus is on the people being lobbied to justify how they reach decisions and, and what information they took into account. 
And it, well, I mean, it's it's not dissimilar to journalism, isn't it? It's like if I've got somebody's number, I can just WhatsApp them and ask the question. They how they answer it or if they answer at all is completely up to them. But I'm I can ask any question I want. So you know, the same is true of of lobbyists, really, isn't it? You can make if you have access. If you have access, why wouldn't you ask that question or make that representation? But it, yeah, then it's on the it's on the the onus is on. The person being lobbied or questioned to choose how they respond. Ultimately, you know, all decisions that are made by politicians and others are way up a whole load of information that they've received, and they might have received them from their own research. Uh, they might have received them from their experience from their own constituency. They might have received it from representation from a lobbyist, whether in-house or, or a consultant. They, you know, the information is received from a significant number of places. Um, I think one of the frustrations here is slight um, uh, sort of tangential point, but uh, one of the frustrations I always had about uh, this discussion is that people to pick their favorites. So, you know, it, it's okay to hear from a charity or from a trade union, but it's not okay to hear from a business um, or a think tank say, and, and it makes no sense to me. I mean, you know, the, the role of politicians is to take information from all sides, all sources, and make good decisions on the back of it. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I just think we need to focus on that uh, and focus on the fact that ultimately the way to um, to make sure that that's happening in a in a transparent and honest way is for is for the people being lobbied to be as open and transparent as, as the people who who do the lobbying. Yeah, well, all that all that all that sifting through information and then deciding how to respond to that does require a level of intellectual rigor and common sense, which is not necessarily one of the hallmarks of our current administration. <laughs> well, I mean, you might say that. I, I think I think one of the one of the challenges here is that um, there's no consistency. There's no sort of consistent interest in this as a subject area. So, you know, there's a lobbying scandal, inverted commas, uh, and then suddenly there'll be an enormous amount of focus on lobbying and how it's regulated and, and, and how it all works. And then it'll die down, people will move on to the next thing, and we'll end up with, you know, a half-assed uh, response to it all, rather than actually sitting down, taking it seriously, looking at everything in the round, uh, and making proper decisions about it. Yeah, I mean, I can I can hear your frustration. I know how frustrated you get about this this, this whole idea that it's somehow part of the dark arts of the the PR and communications world. And in fact, it's completely it's completely legitimate as a as a discipline and as a skill and as a uh, you know a, a, a part of the industry that is where arguably where the where the where the cleverest uh, people are as well, because it does require a, a level of you know, uh, a level yeah, of I could, intellect that maybe other bits of the PR industry don't rely on quite so heavily. I completely agree with you, Maya. Definitely, <laughs> I am in the most intelligent part of our industry. I mean, no, that is true. That is also not true. I mean, you know, there are really, really clever people in all parts of the industry. Clever, creative, you know, brilliant people in in everything that we do. I, I'm not. I'm not looking to set lobbyists apart and uh, in any way. 
not least because these days lobbying is in, you know, generally an integral part of corporate communications in particular. So, uh, so I, I don't see the separation. And also, I mean, one of the other things I find frustrating, and I'm occasionally guilty of this myself, is you know, I think some lobbyists sort of slightly revel in the uh, in the or you know the dark arts, the sleazy lobbyists, the you know, the, the the behind the scenes kind of public sorry the popular view of lobbying as being something like that um and i don't think that in the end whilst it's all very good fun i mean i don't think it does us any favors i think you know the, as i said before the vast 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 majority of people that i know who work in our industry are incredibly professional incredibly diligent um and uh and, and obey all of the rules and more besides um, the issue is not with the professional consulting lobbying uh, part of our profession. It's it's definitely in other places. Okay. I just to be clear, I wasn't trying to say you were really clever. <laughs> well, there you are. <laughs> but but I, I I will take it. <laughs> oh dear. Um, can I want to move on to another thing where communications or the implication of the communications that are going on doesn't seem to be fully taken account and uh, also linked to this this uh, protest, I guess, which is why the media is latched onto the Cameron thing, about the excesses of, of capitalism and greed. And that's the European Super, Super League, which was uh, possibly the shortest lived uh, <laughs> sporting um, endeavour in history. It seems to last five minutes before just entirely collapsed. Tell me, tell me how that all played out for you from a from a communications point of view. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I, I should start by saying that you know, as is customary for all people my age who grew up in Surrey uh, <laughs> in the nineteen seventies, I am of course a Liverpool supporter. Um, <laughs> so, so I, you know, I was personally very vexed and upset. So I'll go so far as to say. Uh, by the by the announcement, but I think the thing that I found really weird is that apparently the clubs did not know what millions and millions of other people knew, which was that this was going to go down, you know, so badly. Everybody concerned, um, you know, starting with uh, the fans, of course, the most important people in in all of this. But all the way through, all of the institutions, I think it's probably a little bit of a surprise just how violently uh, the uh, government reacted to it. Although, you know, fair play, they saw a passing bandwagon and hopped aboard, which is uh, you know, great play on their part. Um, and I mean, you know, slightly surprising to get <coughs> uh, the commentary from uh, from uh, Prince William, but. But nevertheless, I mean, it was clear that this was going to be a disastrous announcement right from the start. And whilst I'm delighted that uh, that lots of the clubs have come out and apologised subsequently, and including my own uh, club, um, it, it all feels a little bit hollow to me because if they had actually listened to advisors uh, in the first place, they would never have got themselves into this mess because it was clear how this was going to play out. Um, and I think... You know, the serious point here is it feels like this is yet another moment of confirmation that um, corporate communications uh, advisors should have been at the top table being listened to in the decision-making process. It feels like uh, communications was regarded as a complete afterthought 
when in fact it should have been the number one thing to say. Um, you know, there, there is a case to be made for uh, reform of the Champions League, reform of UEFA. Mm. Um, there may even be a case for a European Super League. But, but they didn't make it. They didn't even try to make it. They were underprepared, undercooked. They didn't have any plan, it would appear, when it began to unravel. Um, beyond sort of sit it out and let's you know let's hope it all works uh and i mean it was a disaster so so in common terms i think there are two real problems one is complete failure to prepare for an inevitable backlash and number two is failing to have uh communications people at the top table in the first place who would have stopped the mistake being made but this is, I mean, this is astonishing levels of naivety from an organisation that purported to include some of the biggest businesses in Europe, which is what football clubs are now. Don't you think? I mean, it's, 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 it is literally astonishing. Uh, it, it, it's both astonishing and not surprising, given the track record of, uh, of this industry. Uh, it's not an industry I know terribly well. Um, in a professional sense, uh, but uh, but it does seem to be one that really suffers from uh, from not listening to uh, the people who ultimately are are the most important in all of it, and and that is the fans. I, th- I think perhaps they've been a little bit um, lulled into a false sense of security by the fact that football has carried on through the pandemic without fans in the stadium. Uh, with with no difficulty, but but ultimately it's a product that has to be sold. And if the fans are saying they're not interested in the product, if the fans are saying that the thing that does interest them in the product is the idea that you know Aston Villa can beat Liverpool seven two or whatever it was uh, earlier on in the season, um, and and really surprising results can happen at all time, I, I, you know I. It, They've they've made an enormous mistake. You know the, the the excitement of the Premier League and then ultimately of the Champions League um, is in jeopardy. Uh, and if there's no jeopardy because you've got a guaranteed place in one or other of the competitions, then you're immediately undermining your product. And I, I find it astonishing that they don't realise that. The, the the whole the whole view of a, a sport as a product and the and the announcement completely missed out the like you said the human angle of the fans and there is such emotion and passion attached to uh to supporting your club and so and there was such you could really like the the betrayal was quite tangible on on social media and in the response from from fans as well and it it i think that was the most surprising thing for me in in terms of how it how it played out was that they'd literally forgotten about the human beings were involved and that includes the players as well yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, the failure to square off the players may be another element that I should have mentioned. You know, that if you if you're going to make a, a dramatic announcement like this, and normally you would make sure that uh, that at least the people in your own employment were on board, or, yeah. or at least you know understood what was going on, or had been forewarned. I mean, anything, uh, and there was nothing. So, I mean, that was pretty uh, pretty devastating as well. Um, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I. I you know, as I say, it's not an industry I know that well professionally, but it is noticeable, isn't it, that uh, a lot of these clubs are owned, certainly in the UK, are owned by, sorry, I should say England, uh, are owned by uh, foreigners 
perhaps people who come from different traditions of, you know, franchises of uh, sports, um, sports teams, as in the United States. So where where you know promotion and relegation, for example, is not a, is not an issue. So. I do. I do wonder whether there's just sort of a lack of understanding of uh, of, of those things when you have franchises in America, franchise football, uh, football, and other teams in America that are sort of lifted up from one place to another, um, seemingly with no great uh, upset. Then I wonder whether they just sort of think that that's something they'll be able to happen here. But clearly, they've had the answer to that, which is no. And of course, the really stupid thing is that. Um, you know, when it comes now to renegotiations around the actual Champions League, they've weakened their position. So you know they've they've, they've actually done them, done us all a double disservice in that you know, now negotiations about changing the Champions League are not are not going to go quite as they might have done if they if they hadn't shot themselves in the foot. Yes, well, very poor, as you said, corporate comms, employee engagement and stakeholder management. So they've literally failed on every possible <laughs> communication. Yes, I think that's, uh, I, th- I think that's probably fair to say. They, they ticked very few boxes. I guess in terms of financial, I mean, what was quite interesting was uh, the initial reaction of the markets to, um, uh, to, to the uh, ESL was, uh, was positive because... You know, it makes the investments more and more attractive, but uh, but that rapidly changed once uh, once it became clear that the public were uh, were up in arms. Yeah, interesting. Um, how are things going at Park Street Partners? What are you like? Two, are you two years old now? Two and a half years old? Like, I can't. Remember. Uh, no, just over three. Just over three years old. Uh, oh my uh, goodness! Yes, because you started as I started at Provoke. You're one of my first new uh, launch agency stories. That's when we got to know. There we go. I mean, I mean, in fairness, of course, the last year didn't happen. So yes, you could argue <laughs> that it has been two years, um, and that I'm about to celebrate my fiftieth birthday. So uh, you know, <laughs> the, the, there is there is that argument. No, I mean things things are great. I mean, I you know, it is. When you're running a virtual agency as Club Street is, um, it's uh, it's quite easy to pivot to a new world of uh, working from home and uh, uh, working remotely. You know, doesn't really impact uh, too much. And I've uh, uh, I've picked up some you know, great new clients uh, even during the last twelve months, including uh, my strategic partners at PLMR. Um, with whom I have a fantastic relationship. Love the guys over there, Kevin and uh, and the rest of the team. Um, and we you know, that that's been a, a really lovely element of uh, of the last twelve months has been working with PLMR. Um, but you know, there's a number of other clients too. I won't give a full roll call, but uh, uh, but I appreciate their support in every way. Uh, and um, yeah, it's been it's been fine, and and in terms of quality of life, I would you know I know it's been awful for so many people, but but for me personally, it's been uh, not too bad really to uh, uh, to not be travelling into London every day and um, you know getting frustrated on the uh, on the train and waiting for the delay the inevitable delays from uh, first southwestern. Uh, so yes, I'm 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 okay. Touch wood. I'm glad you're okay, and <laughs> I'm glad we can go to the top. <laughs> and also, I'm so glad that you and Kevin clicked because that was that that feels like that always felt to me like that would be a, a good 
a good connection and you're doing great stuff together. I need to catch up with him as well separately. Well, well, once once again, you know, another thing that you have orchestrated by you introduced me to Kevin, uh, and yeah, I mean, we we clicked straight away. I think he's uh, he's a he's a great leader of uh, of his business, and and I think PLMR is a really exciting uh, firm that's uh, got a fantastic uh, future in front of it. So, yeah, really, really been very gratifying, and you can take a small amount of the credit. <laughs> But I, I absolutely know sharing the profits of that, of that liaison. Fair <laughs> and transparent. About, I mean, uh, I, I, I will, I, I will buy you a cider the next time. <laughs> I will buy you a cider. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I know you've yeah. had a pretty chilled experience over the past year compared to, to many others. Have you formed any good lockdown habits or bad lockdown habits that you will or won't take forward into our not quite pan post pandemic world? I think, um, I mean, I've already mentioned not travelling up to London. I, I've got myself locked into a habit of going into town, you know, four, four days a week at least, um, for no really good reason. Uh, so I definitely will not be doing that, which will be good for the environment and um, uh, good for my waistline and, uh, I mean, good for everybody, really. Uh, so... Certainly going to avoid uh, that. That is a good habit that I'll take forward. Um, I'm, I'm definitely sleeping more than I used to. I'm not sure whether that's a good or a bad habit, but um, uh, but, but that's an improvement. I think, um, you know, we are speaking today over Zoom, and uh, I, I, was a, I was a bit of a sceptic of, uh, uh, about video conferencing generally. Uh, but I have to say, although I hate it in many ways, it is a fantastic uh, tool. And the way that everyone has taken to it over the last year is something that I really hope we don't lose, actually, because I think it has brought me closer to uh, a number of clients and, and contacts and so on. You know, just having that easy way to, to jump into a meeting with each other has been has been a big step forward so i think all of those are good things um I'm, you know even walking much though it's a painful joke in many ways um i think it's you know it has been a good habit to form uh in terms of bad habits i mean eating having a fridge on tap is never a good thing is it right. so uh, so definitely need to lose that habit uh, if i can uh, but no, I mean, I mean, look, I, I don't want to in any way diminish the impact of uh, lockdown. I, I know in, in the last 12 months, I know for a lot of people, including um, some of some people that I work with very, very closely, uh, has been devastating and it is awful uh, for, it has been awful for many, many people. So I'm definitely not diminishing that, but uh, the, there have been some, some moments of relief uh, in the last 12 months. I'm glad to hear it. And also thank you for soaking up many messages from me when I wasn't okay. I have appreciated that enormously. Um, and uh, I'm glad you're all right. Um, I thank you very much for running us through that fiesta of cronyism, as you called it. Um, stay out of London, stay away from those parliamentary passes. And I will see you very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.
You have been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.